0: I am Ed Zinke, and my history, my background is a little bit varied. I started out in the ministry, then went to Andrews University for an MDiv degree, uh, then to the General Conference, where I worked 14 years in biblical research. I was also working on a PhD at Catholic University at the same time, and have four years of graduate work there. And then our... uh, lives kind of took a change, and I went in full time into the business that we'd started. When we got to the Washington area, we probably were a little bit naive. As we were moving that direction, Uh, we figured we could buy a house for 20,000 bucks because all of our friends were doing that down in the south. And we thought, well, maybe we'll have to add a little bit when we get to the Washington area. Well, the realtor tried to help us out. Most realtors wouldn't even talk to us. One realtor tried to help us out, and uh, he showed us a home for 30000 and we were afraid to go in the home. So we figured if we were afraid to go in the home, we didn't want to live in that house. And So uh, we realized that Ann would need to, to do some work if we were to stay in the Washington, D.C. area. But we'd always planned that Ann would stay home. By the way, Ann, would you stand? There is Ann of Ann's House of Nuts. So, started on our kitchen deck. We were hoping to make a couple thousand dollars a year so that uh, she could stay home with the kids. And uh, that did work for eight years. She was at home with the kids. um, And then we moved out into business locations. Uh, But the Lord blessed and uh, we continued that growth uh, right up until the point of sale. so our motivation was to keep Ann at home. We never thought in terms of a major business or anything like that, uh, but we wanted to accommodate the family. We tried several businesses and failed, and I think a lot of business people have found that, and I think it's important for you to know that. We cut our losses early when we failed. We didn't lose a lot of money on it, but uh, in fact, most of them we broke even, but uh, often, An entrepreneur will go through several attempts before they're finally successful with with the right one. And that happened to us. Uh, Basically, it started like this. After we had tried several things unsuccessfully, my dad, who is a physician, had bought an almond ranch, hoping to have it paid off by retirement time. And he was visiting us one day, and we were discussing our circumstances there in Washington, DC area. And he said, well, why don't you try nuts? Well, that was the business plan that took us for the next almost 35 years. We tried nuts. Uh, The GC, of course, knew how desperate we were, and so when we checked to see if Ann could sell some nuts during the noon hour outside the front door, they graciously said yes, and she sold about $800 worth the first day, and when she got home, she doesn't she didn't want to be an Amway lady or anything like that she didn't want anything to do with sales when we got home uh, calls started coming in can we get more can we get more can we get more and uh, so finally Ann said you know if they're gonna come to me I can do it I I don't want to go to them but if they're gonna come to me I'm gonna do it so for eight years we had the business in our home the last year we took all of our furniture off the first floor moved it to the second floor piled it up willy-nilly in our bedroom, uh, and the entire first floor, the entire basement, the entire garage was occupied with nuts. Um, just a little humorous story and, and uh, a point where government worked well. Uh, one day, right in the fall, which was our busiest season, uh, Anne got a knock on the door, and of course a lot of people were coming to the house to pick up nuts, and so she answered the door, and here was a government agent Uh, county agent and said somebody told me you're running a business here and of course there was no way to deny it because everything was jam-packed with nuts and dried fruit and so she said well yes and she said we're planning on this was in the fall she said we're planning on, on terminating in May because since we didn't have refrigeration we had to end in May and then we're planning on going into a warehouse for the fall And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I don't have any choice. I have to report what I found here. But you know, when I go back and report it, I don't have to put it on the top of my pile. So it'll go on the bottom of my pile. And eventually, it'll make its way to the top. And when it makes its way to the top, then I have to write a letter to you. And so you'll receive a letter from me. And I'm sure you have a pile, too. So it goes on the bottom of your pile. And eventually, it will work its way to the top, and then you write a letter explaining what you're doing to me, and it goes on the bottom of my pile. And anyway, (laughs) he graciously worked it out so so that we had through May to wipe out our inventory, to to sell our inventory, and make our move to the warehouse. Uh, He came back several times when we had our new location. Very proud of himself, as he should have been, for making it possible for us to run the business. I'm sure he could have put us out of business had he wished to do so. Um, our customers were individuals, and then we went to the school and had a table with nuts and dried fruit on it, and uh, when they had their citrus program, and people could come and, and buy nuts and dried fruit, and then co-ops uh, at that time were popular, and they found out about us, and we started to selling, selling to co-ops. Uh, when we made our move, uh, we were relying very heavily on, on retail business, and we had a showroom, and people would be lined up at the door in the morning when we opened it, and uh, Friday evening it was, you know, obviously we closed before sundown, but it was always, always a task to get that door closed because so many people were coming. Sunday morning there would be a long line in front of our showroom, people wanting to buy nuts and dried fruit. We did almost no advertising. My guess is, during our entire existence, we might have spent ten or $20,000 on advertising. It was word of mouth, uh, it was quality, uh, it was service that made things work for us. I want to tell you a little bit about myself, and you'll understand this when we come to the end of the presentation. I was one of those kids that professors didn't know what to do with. I- I flunked the first grade. It's not that I was a a difficult kid, but I flunked the first grade. Then we went to Mexico for four years, and nobody really knew what grade I was in down there because there wasn't any English school except for the last uh, year. Came back, they put me into what they thought was probably my grade level, and and I struggled. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, in Mexico, the president of the university down there said... You will be lucky if Ed makes it through the eighth grade. And then when I got into high school, they figured I had a 50% chance of getting through high school. Uh, I began to wake up in college and got fairly decent grades there, and then in my MDiv, MA, and and PhD program, I got almost a four point. Unfortunately, I got a few A minuses and maybe 1B plus or something like that. So, But I want to come back to that, because one of the questions is, you know, if somebody might like myself and, and Ann can do it, anybody can do it. Besides that, I was extremely bashful. It was very hard for me to talk to somebody on the phone or say hello to somebody face to face. And so that only made it a bigger challenge to run a business. Some of the things, preparation for entrepreneurial activities. Shortly after we started our business, uh, you know, I, I well, I do, I do have an accounting, one course in accounting, uh, but that's the limit of my business uh, training. I did read one article in the Washington Post, uh, and there were 25 things on how to be an entrepreneur. Someday, I'm sure I'll find it in my file someplace, but... There's one thing that I remember out of those 25 things, and that is work 16 hours a day. And of course, they said seven days a week. Of course, for us, that was six days a week. But indeed, for most people, being an entrepreneur is extremely intensive. And if you're thinking of doing that, that's one thing you need to think of. Am am I willing to put that kind of effort into a business? to make it successful. And if not, you know, there are other things. If you have some very super special thing, you know, if you're a Bill Gates or something like that, maybe you can make it work because you have something that nobody else in the world has. But we were starting a mature business. You know, nuts have been sold in this country for a couple hundred years, been sold worldwide for thousands of years. And so it's not like we had some special magic that we were bringing to the marketplace, we were entering a market uh, that already was mature, already had its players, already had shelf space on, on the decks and so on and so forth. And so uh, it was definitely, it took all that we could give it in order to make it possible for that uh, business to grow. I think, and that's, this is kind of one of the themes, the Lord leads us through experiences that prepares us for the future. And there's one thing, when we got to the Washington area, we realized we couldn't afford a home, and so we decided to build one. Now, I'd never had had a hammer in my hand before, so that was a little bit of a challenge. But Ann and I decided, if somebody else can do it, we can do it too. And so indeed, we we subcontracted it. Uh, We uh, did a lot of the work ourselves and managed to get into a nice home as a result of that, a home that finally became the home for Ann's House of Nuts uh, as we were building that. We had a lot of troubles building that home. We contracted a company to put up the shell, and it was going to take nine days to put up the shell. Well, nine months later, it still wasn't up. Now, for me, that was absolute catastrophe because, remember, I was this bashful kid, and getting on the phone... And trying to work this thing out with them was an absolute terror to me. It just tore my stomach up every time I had to do that. And I think that was one. I think the Lord knew I needed that training experience. How do you go through a crisis like this? How do you solve it? You know, how do you get people on the phone? How do you work things out uh, so that I would be prepared for the business that was coming later, which of course we knew nothing about at the time. Well Some advice if you 're going to start a business or a start a ministry, I think many of these principles work both ways, and so those of you that are in ministry i 'm grateful that you 're here uh, because I think there's a lot that we can learn back and forth between each other. but one is know your business uh, you know 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 what it is that makes your business up and as we go through the presentation, I think you 'll see that that we gained that knowledge but if you don't know anything about it, you know, find somebody that does, work for somebody that does. In some way, get into the business so that you understand how it operates. Another thing, and this may not apply if your great-grandfather left you $200 million or something like that, but for someone like us who didn't even have one cent, uh, start small. Build your knowledge, uh, build your staff, build your procedures, um, build your brand Your reputation And this is another thing that I didn't really totally understand Until after we would sold our business But as I, as I heard this um, a, a business friend was telling me why he was successful He says, it's who you know And who your mentors are That make you who you are And at first that kind of sounds elitist But but let me go through why that's important. Um, As I reflected back, that was why we were successful, and I'll give you an illustration of that. Uh, When we started out, I did the purchasing, and uh, it worked in well with my job because, you know, I can call during the noon hour for people in New York, and I can call during after work for people on the West Coast, and so, so it worked out nicely. But I didn't just simply find one supplier. You know, I knew 40 walnut suppliers. I knew 50 almond suppliers. Uh, before we started importing, I knew three or four, five, six cashew suppliers. When we started importing, we knew 150 or 200 or something like that. Now, how did that help? Well, it helped in several ways. One is I had first-hand sources of information. Uh, You know, I'd call 20, 30 people about walnuts before I made a purchase, and I got a real sense as to where the market was. If I only had one person to contact, I would not have had that source. Besides, they would have known that, and they would have taken advantage of me. Uh, So one day, uh, I was working on walnuts, and had done my contacts, and I realized there were very few um, walnuts sitting in California. And so I went to the largest supplier of walnuts and bought what for us then was just a huge quantity. Bought it at 66 cents. The next day they were off the market, and when they came back on, they were at $1.40. Now, how could a small company like myself buy from the largest company in the world at a price of 66 cents when they're going to be off the market the next day? See, they can't talk to 30 people. They can't call their competitors and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Whereas I was able to do. So I had information that they didn't have, even though I was a small guy, and I was able to act on that information. In addition to that, and we'll get to purchasing a little bit later, but since I'm on the illustration, when you call that many people, you just might find somebody in a cash flow situation that really needs the cash worse than they need the almonds or whatever it is, And so while the market might be at $2, you might buy at $1.85 or $1.90, assuming you promise quick pay and so on and so forth. So who you know is extremely important. And then also, you will discover that some of those are in the business as much for friendship as they are for sales. And they don't mind mentoring you at all. And so find those people and allow them to mentor you. You know, allow them to to be a backstop for you, to to help you understand the business better. Um, we actually started our business with zero financing. We didn't have anything, and fortunately, a kind gentleman was willing to give us accounts payable, accounts receivable from his, his end, accounts payable from our end. We sold the nuts. We paid him off, he gave us some more, we paid him off, gave him some more. Uh, then as we got larger, this was during the time when interest rates were 17, 18, 19%. And uh, by then we had some small sized customers, grocery stores and so on and so forth. And our terms were 10 days. And so and, and this I'm telling you this not only because this is how we finance the business to begin with, but I think it'll give you some of the creativity that you need to have if you're going to run a business. Uh, what we did, we got our orders on Monday. We placed our orders with New York because at the time we weren't importing ourselves. We placed our orders with New York on Tuesday. We picked it up on Wednesday. We got it back Wednesday night. Thursday we produced it. Friday we distributed it. And Friday, we billed it. And we were receiving 30-day terms, and we billed 10-day terms. So the money came in before we had to pay it out. Then we found a West Coast company where we could wire the money, getting 18% uh, per annum. And we found an East Coast bank that was the slowest one in the U.S. for clearing checks. So we were making money on our cash flow, in addition to making money on our nuts. Uh, so that gave us a start. Of course, eventually we built up enough capital, and as we got more customers, we had to more, have more inventory. And finally, we had to go to the bank. Uh, and that is, let's see, we'll get to the bank a little bit later. I wanna talk, talk about purchasing. Uh, We considered a supplier as important to us as a customer. Most people beat up their suppliers uh, and, you know, make it difficult for the the supplier to collect the the money and and so on and so forth. And and the supplier is the low man on the totem pole. But we figured they were just as important to us as any customer we had. We couldn't sell nuts if we didn't have nuts. And... uh, the result of, now, that didn't mean we gave them a lot of money. We were also one of the best shoppers out there. So they knew if they were going to sell us, it had to be at a good price. Uh, so it's not like we were a rollover. But, but we treated them right. You know, For example, we paid our bills on time. And they knew they were going to get their payment on time. What did that do to the prices they gave us? They, did, they knew they didn't have a risk. So they could sell us cheaper then they would sell our competitors because they didn't know if they were going to get their money out of their competitors. And so not only is it the Christian thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. If you agree to 10 days, pay it on 10 days. If you agree to 30 days, pay it on 30 days. Uh, You know, make sure that that your your payables are up to date. And I discovered, and we'll be discussing this a little bit more through the lecture, but I discovered that that's something, as we got bigger, I had to stay on top of it. Because my people, you know, they came from other companies that that did payables, and they thought it was their job to whip the the supplier. And so I'd sit down with them every now and then explain, you know, we we aren't in business without a supplier, and this is the way they're going to be handled. When they call and ask about the check, don't put them off. You know, tell them what's happening. Occasionally we're going to have cash flow problems. Uh, That just happens in business. Okay, if we have a cash flow problem, we aren't going to be able to pay them on time. Well, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna wait for them to call us? No, we're gonna call them. And we're gonna tell them, because of this, we're in a cash flow crisis, we expect it to last another three or five days or whatever, whatever it is, and this is when we plan to pay you. And then pay them on time. If for some reason you can't, get them on the phone again. And we found that people are willing to work with you so long as they're in the loop. Uh, And so the relationship with the customer, with the supplier, is an extremely important relationship, especially for a company like ours. Obviously, I'm describing a commodities business because that's what we were, a commodities business. But I think that kind of thing would apply to almost any business. Um, And then it's important to know your suppliers. You know, a lot of our competitors... They didn't know the people that were supplying them. Uh, I mean, they knew their name. They knew their phone number. But they didn't know them. We, we got out there and we visited them. You know, we were in their plant at least once a year, maybe twice a year. Even in India, I remember there was, there was an occasion over there where there were 500 people worldwide that were dealing with cashews. And there were two American companies there, Ann's House of Nuts and Planters. Where were the rest of our competitors? You know, So we had the advantage of getting into 50, 100 plants. We had the advantage of of meeting the owners. Our pictures got put on the walls in those plants. So when people came to work, they knew who who they were working for, not that plant. They were working for us. It had to be quality. Uh, And so we created relationships with a lot of them. And we also knew the ones we didn't want to do business with because we had been in their plant. So make sure you know who you're supplier is, uh, understand the players and their company, their their culture, their operation and plant, uh, their capacity. That's extremely important. Suppose you get a, a big order from a major customer and you think they can supply you and they can't. Then you have to go back to the customer and say, sorry, I didn't do my homework with my suppliers. And that's the last thing you want to do because a large company, they don't want to have to think. All they want to have to do is give you an order because they have so much to do. They don't, have to, they don't want to have to work through that. They want to give you an order, say I want it shipped on this date and I wanted it to arrive on that date, and they don't want to have to think about it again. So you've got to make sure you have all of your backup plans. We, we imported from 39 countries. So all of this product had to get to our plant just in time so that we would have it to manufacture it so that we could ship it just in time. So make sure your suppliers know your expectations. And here, and I'm going to make this statement several times during this lecture, that good agreements make for good relationships. I want to say that again. That's important. Good agreements make for good relationships, And so make sure that you're together with your supplier on quality, on price, when they're going to ship it, what the financial terms are going to be, and anything else that's involved in that purchase. It might even be how they're going to ship it. Are they going to ship it by rail or are they going to ship it by truck? Well, in some cases, rail is too hard on a product. Don't ship it by rail, even though it's a cent and a half cheaper or whatever. ship ship it on a truck. So everything, make sure that everything is spelled out so that there isn't, you know, you don't come back and say, hey, you said this and you said this and so on and so forth. You have it all on paper. Good relationships, good relationships are based upon good agreements. Another thing, and and this will probably become clear when I talk about how our customers developed us, but build and develop your supplier. Now we dealt with the largest almond company in the world. And they are a better company because we dealt with them. Our people were in their company. We saw what they were doing. We looked at their procedures. We checked their quality control systems. And when when we left, they had a better map on how to run their business than they did the day before we arrived there. And so develop your suppliers because they can... Take care of you better, and besides, they'll appreciate it. You know, wow, we're a better company because Ann's House of Nets was here. They will appreciate that. So, so develop your suppliers so that they can produce for you just exactly what it is that you need for your company. Know your product and its quality. You know, with with cashews, there's probably different fifty different grades and sizes, maybe more than that. Uh, so make sure you know exactly what quality. Make sure you know how to recognize it when it comes into your plant so that you can reject it if it is not to your specifications. Make sure that your supplier knows that you're going to reject it if it's not to the specifications that you agreed on. But again, you have to agree on it in advance. Otherwise, you're just going around the circle and playing games with your supplier. Uh, Know the market. Ours, and for some of you, this probably doesn't apply at all, but ours was a commodity market. And if, you don't know, if you're trying to play commodities and you don't know the market, you are in trouble. I mean, we had swings in, in pecans, for example, from $2 to $4.50 within a three-month three period. Uh, if you aren't prepared, if you, if you haven't bought at $2, you're going to be losing money trying to sell pecans at three fifty uh for your base price. So so and one of the ways to know the market is just like I said, you are in contact with a lot of people. So you know a lot of opinions. Now some of those people will try to deceive you. That's okay, you figure that out. So when somebody says, hey, you really need to be buying cashies now and they deceived you for the last three times, you know it's time to sell. You know, so you're still getting information out of them, whether they're telling you the truth or not. Uh, So there's still an uh, an important point of supply of information. So know the market. Uh, When you buy the product, you know, some people will go out and say, I'm buying five, ten, hundred truckloads of cashews, whatever. Uh... And they let people send bids in, and then they take the lowest bid, and then they buy that. Now, I know some people disagree with me on this, but our philosophy was if the customer knows they, if the supplier knows they have the business, if they can meet our price, then we have taken the variables out of their decision making because they know they have the sale. So they can go back and look at their processes and say, yeah, we can sell this for two cents less or whatever, uh, and they will sell it. Whereas if they're just simply in a bidding process, they don't know whether they're going to get the business or not. They have to hedge for where the market might be. They have to hedge for what size the crop's going to be. They have to hedge for all kinds of things. So take the guessing game out of your supplier, and they can give you a better price. And we found the same with our customers that, you know, some would just go out for bid and we had to allow for, you know, cashews are going up and trucking's going up and uh, this and that and the other thing. And besides the order is so large that it's not sitting in the United States, so we'd have to bring it in. So so we have 10 risks, you know? So we price it based on those 10 risks. Well, if they come back to us and say, you know, we want to buy from you, but it has to be at this price, we can go back and say, How many risks can we take off the table? And we can make a decision then uh, whether we can sell it at a lower price, and often we could, uh, because they had taken the risk out of it for us, and so we were able to offer the margin that we had put into that risk uh, to them instead of putting it into the risk. Um, And so just kind of summary, Your success depends upon the number of movers and shakers in the business that you know and speak with, who you network with, and who your mentors are. So be sure and develop those mentors. Uh, Often, I'd be on the phone and somebody would come into my office and say, why are you talking to so-and-so? And I'd say, I don't know. But two days later, I found out why I was talking to them. I needed that information. You know, so I stayed on top of what was happening, even when I didn't need the information right at that moment, so that when I would need it i was I was prepared to act on it. Uh, just briefly, if you're going to start a business or move a business, just a few of the things to think about uh, in terms of location. Uh, what is the cost of business in doing uh, business in that particular location? there's a huge variation across the United States, so determine what that is. Determine if there is a workforce that has the skills to do what you need them to do. If you end up in an area where they don't have the skill, I'll tell you, you've got an uphill battle, unfortunately, we know. Uh, So make sure that the talent is there. Uh, Make sure that your support system is there, you know, that there's good trucking, that there's good access to docks if you need to import, uh, that there's you have the right lawyers. Of course, nowadays, you could work with a lawyer someplace else, but still, it's nice to be able to sit down every now and then. Uh, you know, just The right people to do the art for you, the right people to do this, 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 and this. Whatever you need for your business, make sure that it's available to you in the area where you're placing your business. Uh, also, and this is one thing we didn't do a very good job of, and I think we left a lot of money on the table, There are many regions that will give you funds to move to their region, especially if it's a medium or larger business. And take full advantage of that. And probably you'll need a specialist. If you have a specialist, all of a sudden they look at you differently. Uh, Have a specialist help you find the right location and negotiate the deal. Now, they're going to get a cut on that, but that cut will be way less than what you gave up by not uh, knowing the ropes in going into that kind of an area. Marketing. Develop your image. Who you are, what you want to convey to the public. In our case, thanks to Ann, she was uh, she was really the company image person. Uh, you know, she created the company image, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. But you want... For us, these were the important things. They may not; they may be different for you. But you need to decide what they are: high quality, low price, innovation, service orientated, one stop shopping. You see, our competitors: one sold almonds, and one sold uh, almonds, and another sold cashews, and another sold pistachios, and another sold dried apricots, and so on. So when the customer came to us. We could give them a whole shelf with Ann's House of Nets on it. it looked beautiful compared to four or five or six different vendors on that same shelf. So that gave us an advantage that our competitors did not have. Now, they caught on, of course. And that's one of the challenges in business. You've got to stay ahead of them. But to start out with, uh, we were the only one-stop shopping in town. And so even though we were a small company, uh, we were able to compete with the biggies, because we could do something that they couldn't do and that they would have to spend some time developing their skills in order to keep up with us. Um, And so, let's, I'm sorry, this just skipped on me here. Okay, back to where I'm supposed to be. So for us, the high quality, the low price, the innovation service was another key ingredient. Uh, they knew that when they gave us an order, that they would get it. Now that wasn't always easy. You know, My times at the plant at two o'clock in the morning can't be counted. Uh, there were many times like that, but the customer got the product, and therefore I got the next order. And uh, a lot of our competitors ran their business based upon what's most cost-effective. For the plant. And so if they would have to run overtime, they would tell the customer it's going to be three more days. Uh, you know, if something else happened here, if they would have to put the product on a fast truck to get it to them, they would say, you know, the product's not going to be here for a week when they could have it there in three days. Just pay a couple hundred dollars more. Whatever it was for us, we even sometimes flew stuff in, it was it was the customer that mattered. Uh, not our bottom line. Now, obviously, there are limits to that. But uh, in general, unless it was just some way-out thing, it was the customer that mattered. And they soon figured that out. And they liked that. Because, again, that takes something off their shoulder. Our, your job is to do as much of your customer's work as you can possibly do so that they don't have to do it. Because they already have more than they can do anyway. So if you're going to do their work for them, uh, they can go on to other things. Your competitor is not doing the work for them. Who are they going to give the business to? You might even get a a cent or two more, which in our business was a lot, uh, because you're providing a service for them that they, they really need, and your competitor isn't willing to supply the service. For example, one of our customers... We monitored their inventory, and we placed the orders for them. Now, they always had the right to overwrite an order that was placed. But they didn't even have to think. They didn't have to think, how am I going to fill out this truck? How am I going to get this truck from here to here? How am I You know, There were just lots of things that they didn't have to think about that we took care of for them. That helped us, too, because it, we were able to smooth our flow. If we were dependent upon them... You know, the buyer is working on something else for two weeks, and then all of a sudden says, ah, forgot my order to Ann's House of Nuts. And so it comes in three times larger than you would expect. And so all of a sudden you have to work day and night, and you have to rush stuff in and everything else. Of course, you do it because you want the customer, but uh, it it, smooths out, it smoothed out our operation, and it made it way easier for the buyer. Another thing that we did, and I'm just giving you these things because then for your business you can try to think of analogous things. When we started our business, nobody was selling nuts and dried fruit in the produce department. Now, tell me, where do most customers, what department do most customers visit when they go to the grocery store? Is it the flour department? They go to produce, right? Right. Almost every customer has to go through produce. In fact, most stores are designed so that you have to go through produce before you get to the other aisles. And so we sold our product in the produce department. Now, there were some disadvantages. They put a higher markup on it than it would have been on the shelf. So our product was more costly in the store than it would have been otherwise. Uh, But we had an advantage, too, in produce, at least then. I think now it's probably different, but... But then they they didn't ask for money up front, whereas if we put it in the aisle, you know, if we were selling them a thousand dollars worth of product, they probably asked for a thousand bucks to put it on the shelf. We didn't have that in produce. So anyway, that was one way we had an advantage over our competitors, and none of them could do it because none of them had one stop shopping. So we had we had a monopoly on that market. Private label, back then, again this has changed. Back then nobody else was really doing private label, or if they were, it was very inferior grade. Some of our customers said, came to us, they said, we want private label, and we want the top grade. We want our brand, our in-store brand, to be the best brand that's out there. Now, they had already gone to planners, and planners said, oh, we don't do private label. We're happy to sell it to you under our brand, no problem, but we're not going to sell it to you under your brand. Well, that was just fine with us because we knew how to put it under their brand. And so by finding a niche that the larger companies didn't want to fill, we were able to, to fill that niche. Speed to market. Extremely important. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations. Um, one day I got a call from one of our customers. Well, we'd visited this customer. We thought we had the business and it wasn't coming our way. And I was puzzled. So I, I called the, the uh, buyer, and I, I said, you know, we kind of thought we were going to get together here. What, is there anything I can do to help you out? And he said, yeah, there is. He says, you brought me a one-pound bag, but I don't want one pound of walnuts. I want 10 ounces of walnuts. Now, imagine telling that to planners. You know, how many committees would it have to go through before they finally figured out how to do that? Well, I said, give me 10 minutes. I got out my pencil and paper. Uh, It was before the computer age. Uh, Figured out what it was going to cost me and what I could ship it for, and gave him a call back. And just like that, I had an order. Uh, So being able to move fast was extremely to our advantage. Uh, Another time, we'd been trying to get into a store for years and just were not having any success. And my sales manager was there on, I think, November 2nd, something like that, and made the presentation. And we were presenting our product, hoping they would accept Ann's House of Nuts. And after the presentation, they asked my sales manager to step out. Usually this doesn't happen. Usually they say, go home and we'll call you. They asked him to step out for a few minutes. And then they called him back in. And they said, well, we'd like to go with you. Couple of conditions. One is it's under our label. And this was, by the way, was going to be on a rack, too, that we supplied. Number two, that it be on the rack. Number three, that it be on our stores before the end of November. Now think that one through. We have no artwork. The rack hasn't been built. Uh, you know, we have to get the product in, so on and so forth. We missed it by about one or two days, and they were absolutely delighted. Nobody else could have done that. Uh, It might have taken three or four months for the best company out there to do that. Uh, We had another call from a major customer that was shortly before we sold, and we were really proud of this one. Um, They said, they came to us, they said, we want this, 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 36 items. I mean, and and nobody has 36 items (laughs) in this store. And so they wanted 36 items, and they wanted them packaged in a certain way, and uh, but they wanted it by such and such a date. Now, why did it have to be by that date? Because that was the date they were resetting the stores. If it got there a day later, there's no place to put the product because the stores have already been reset. So there was no negotiation on the date. And and the the deadline was virtually impossible. Well, we partnered with them, which that's... Part of being an innovative company, partner with your customers, we partnered with them. We became almost one team, their people and our people. We worked together day and night, they worked hard too, not just us, uh, and we got we got it all pulled together, and we got it there about a week before they needed it. Uh, after that, a major company, the largest nut company in the world, now a company like that has enough intelligence so they know what's happening, even if it's not their own product. They know this they're buying from somebody else even before it hits the shelf. Well, this company didn't know this was happening until they saw it on the shelf. And they were a little bit upset. You know, Why would this large company give this business to a small company like us? Uh, besides, they were the ones doing all these great things for this big company. And anyway, the buyer just looked him straight in the eye and he said... Ann's House of Nuts is the only company that could have done this. And so, of course, we were pretty proud that we, were, we had that opportunity. Indeed, we did do it. We met their, their expectations. Now, where are they going to go next time? Going to come back, right? And, and as a matter of fact, after we sold the company, they did come back with similar things uh, several times. So speed to market gives you a competitive advantage that it's very hard for a large company to match. Uh, then, of course, you have to consider your packaging pres- presentation, your placement in the store. Don't get it stuck in the store where, where it's not going to sell. You, know, you give them the fee up front to get it into their store, and then they put it someplace and it's not going to sell. Make sure that's all part of your agreement. Um, if possible, test before going big. Now, that wasn't always possible for us, Because sometimes our suppliers put us under so much pressure. But if possible, tests. And there are several times when we didn't have the luxury of a test, when we got into serious trouble. Some of the product that we thought would be the best stuff out there just didn't sell. And that's another thing you need to learn, at least in our business. The product isn't sold until it's consumed. Now, you might have been paid for it already, but if it doesn't get consumed, the the store comes back to you and says hey we have X number of packages we need a check for X amount and you can say I want to keep on doing business with you and I'm going to pay you that or this is the last time we're doing business and I'm not going to pay you that I mean it's your choice Uh, so wherever possible keep keep yourself out of that kind of a circumstance and test before you go to market in a big way Uh, Innovation, I guess that's what we've been talking about here. Innovation is another thing that small companies can have, that large companies... Large companies have so much bureaucracy that to get something through all the hoops takes time. A small company can maybe even make the decision in a day or an hour or whatever and get the work done almost immediately... So we had a person that did our art. It was a small one-man shop. He was an excellent uh, designer. And we were top on his list because he was getting a lot of business from us. So somebody would come to us, say we need so-and-so. We would give him a call. He would be over at our office by the afternoon. By the morning, he would have something that we could look at. It wasn't the final thing, but we could look at it. We could get it to our customer. Our customer knew that we were on top of it because he could now look at something. And, uh, and our team inside, and again, was responsible for nutrition and all that kind of stuff, and for the art. So uh, we pulled that together, and then we satisfied the customer. High quality standards, another very important thing. with quality let me make this statement <coughs> we chose to sell the very top quality now you can make money selling junk too and i'm not saying that's that's wrong you can some of our competitors sold junk cashews and they made a lot of money probably more than we did our problem was we didn't know anything about junk cashews and so we didn't sell junk cashews because we didn't want to get stuck with something that was worse than junk uh, and have all the product come back to us. And besides, we wanted our image to be the top image. If we'd had, If we'd run the business longer, I think I would have developed another label for junk cashews. But the important thing about quality is that it's always the same. The customer, when the customer buys it, they know what they're getting. You know they, <coughs> they don't get top quality one day and poor quality the next. If, if they buy top quality in a package that's not supposed to be top quality, when they buy it again, they're expecting top quality. So make sure your quality is consistent. <clears throat> Another thing that sells your company, that sells your product, is, is your uh, <clears throat> procedures. How do you run your business? Your procedures is really an operating manual for how your business runs, and I'll get into this a little bit more later. But having excellent procedures, having a clean plant. One day, the buyer from a major company called us at like 9 in the morning, and she says, I have some guests. I want to come over and see you. Now, she was 1,500 miles away from us. We didn't know she was going to be there. and She came and and walked this guest through our plant. And as she was leaving, she said, well, I knew that it was safe for me to come here at the last second. Sometimes you'll get them at the last second without any notification and without a guest. There you just simply want to see how you're running your business. So always be prepared for that. We've talked about service. Educate your customers. This is something we kind of learn the hard way. Uh, we were selling nuts and dried fruit. Nuts and dried fruit are not crackers where you've ground up wheat and you've made it into a cracker and baked it and put it into a package and sold it. Uh, Now, if you're grinding the wheat and you have a foreign object in there, what happens to the foreign object? It disappears, right? Well, there's no way to buy an almond that for sure has no... Foreign product. I mean it's just impossible, even with the best equipment. Even with the latest laser sorting equipment, you can't do that. We should have we should have educated our customer on that right up front. Uh, We didn't realize that they didn't know that. And so when they found a piece of foreign material, we only had reports of like one and a half billion pieces. But when they found a piece of foreign material, they thought we were shipping them inferior stuff. And we educated them. Of course, we did come in and educate them then. and We brought them all of the quality uh, requirements and so on and so forth from the FDA. And they finally accepted that. But we would have saved ourselves an embarrassing situation with our customer if we had done that in advance. know your customer is the next item i have here don't just know their name know who your customer is every single customer we had was different excuse me i'm sorry i mean just like there are many different people in this room each customer is different also and so make sure you know that customer their personnel structure of their company, the limits of the purchasing agent, who are the movers and shakers in the company, company culture, the expectations that they have of you so that you can make sure that you fulfill them, what opportunities you have with the company. And at first, this may not be obvious, but let me give you an illustration. One of, our, one of our customers put on a lot of sales. And those sales would just move huge quantities of product through their stores. <coughs> well, one day, they'd had a sale lined up with somebody <coughs> for the last three months. And at the last minute, that person couldn't ship. They came to us. We produced the product and shipped it to them. Where are they going to come next time? They're going to come to us. So so there we, we discovered an opportunity with that customer, and then we milked that opportunity. We also said, you know, we've served you well. We deserve some sales when they aren't at the last minute. And they said, yeah, you do. You know, you're doing a good job for us. And so we got the business in addition to that. So what are their expectations? Expectations. What are the opportunities? Partner with your customer, as I suggested that we did with the, with the new product, the new art. Allow your customer to, to develop your company, just like I was talking about. We developed one of the almond plants. Allow them to come in and do the same to your plant. And indeed, several did that. And our our company was a way better company because of what they did. And then we were matching their expectations. And, and they didn't have to worry about it. They had confidence in what we were doing. And we didn't have to worry that there would all of a sudden be some kind of an accident of some sort. Uh, I've already talked about how to think about giving an offer... To a supplier, your customer may do the same thing to you, and don't just simply say no. Study it because that may give you the opportunity because it takes all the risk out of it. You know you got you have the business if you meet the price, so it, get, it allows you to go back and check that. Hand in the back here. On the issue of your customers helping you develop your process, were you a certified ISO or did they push you in that direction? Well, we were the the equivalent of a certified ISO uh, for the food industry uh, was yeah and that ended up being one of our advantages Uh, we we had a problem at one point that the customer didn't understand and so they told us we're gonna take five percent of your business away we're gonna give this section of our business to somebody else and a year later we went back and said We don't know what happened. We're still shipping that location. And he said, the other supplier could not meet our standards. And so you kept the business. Uh, So (laughs) indeed, the higher standard you have, the greater advantage it gives you in the marketplace. And sometimes it's not a question of costs; It's a question of what kind of a plant is this coming out of. So that was a good question. Uh, One day I was sitting in a room a little bit larger than this one with CEOs of other food companies, and the president of the company we were selling to was giving us a presentation the first thing he said was, we do not want to do business with any good companies. Now, we sat there you know, with our mouths open. We're a good company, and they don't want to do business with us. He said, we will only do business with great companies. And so you see where they are heading. It has Not only are they going to run their company great, they're going to buy from people who are running their companies great. Well, how do you, <coughs> how do you have a great company? <coughs> Obviously, there are many things, but I want to go through standard operating procedures. And I think this is one place where, where the uh, nonprofit organizations and prof- for-profit organizations are really in the same camp. The operating procedure is a manual for how to run your business or, or your nonprofit organization. Having that manual means that you're consistent all the time because the employees know what's expected of them and how they are to handle a particular situation. It also, believe it or not, if you have a good manual, you can hire people that don't have the same level of skill. Why? Because they don't have to think. They just have to follow the manual. Uh, So you aren't reinventing the wheel every time a problem comes up. You know, we've faced this problem before. We've figured out how to handle it. They go to the manual, tells them how to handle it, and so they don't have to think it through. And the company doesn't have to waste its efforts thinking through these issues every time. So, you know, for example, and and standard operating procedures, you know, can, can be whatever you make of them, but how do you order your product, just to give you some examples of what you can have a procedure for. What grade of product do you order? What are the qualifications for the companies you order from? What are the procedures for accepting or rejecting a product? How do you do sanitation? How do you change a machine over? And by the way, that can cut your labor costs almost in half if you know how to change a machine over on a timely basis. Uh, how do you perform preventive maintenance? How do you handle a new customer? How do, you take <clears throat> or how do you handle a new order? How do you handle accounts payable and receivable? We've already talked some about that. How do you return phone calls? When we had a call from one of our major customers and the person wasn't there, almost in every case they got a call back within one or two minutes. It was either from myself, from another top executive, or we would call the cell phone of the sales manager, and, and he would get back to them. So <coughs> returning phone calls, especially with some of your top customers, are extremely important. And there again, you're taking something off their back. They don't have to call you three times. Uh, they don't have to keep on worrying about what it is they wanted to tell you. It gets off their mind. You want problems off their mind, and so getting back to them immediately does that. How do you greet people in the lobby when they come into your operation? You know, Do they feel at home, or do they feel like they aren't welcome when they arrive? And then, and I put et cetera, et cetera, because obviously that's just the beginning of the procedures you can have. Our quality operating manual was about like this. When we went to sell our company, that's what we had to sell. I'm going to say that again. When we went to sell our company, that's what we had to sell. We had a company that was set up to run, and people knew how to run it. And so they, they were really buying our operating procedures, what we had put in place when they bought the company. <clears throat> and they knew that if we could make money off of it, they could too. Uh, all of the above that we've been talking about creates barriers to entry. And that's an important thing. What's, what's my competitor doing? Well, if you're ahead with your quality control, with your purchasing, with with your service, with you know everything else we've talked about, your competitor is going to have to come up to that level or dramatically reduce their price or go out of business. They, they won't be able to compete with you on a par-to-par because you've raised the, the the bar so high that they can't get over it. And that's, you know, when this customer said they were giving 5% of our business to some somebody else, that's what happened. Our bar, our bar was high. Theirs was low. They didn't get the business. And by the way, when you lose 5% of your business, that is a danger sign. I mean, it sounds small, but if that other person... Clears the bar, then they get 10%, then they get 20%, then they get 50%, then they get 70%. As a matter of fact, that's how we grew, you know. Oftentimes, somebody would start out something new and they'd have three suppliers, but within six months they had one supplier, uh, because we we hurdled, we crossed the hurdle. But how much time do we have left here? Looks like about 10 minutes. Is that right? Okay. Some of the important, most important roles. When you become an entrepreneur, and it'd be the same in the nonprofit, when you're in, in charge of something like that, you're no longer a specialist. And that's where some people get themselves in trouble. You know, they're absolutely excellent at bending metal a certain way or creating a compound or whatever. And they go into business and they bring their expertise but they don't know how to build a business or manage a business. When you go into business, you're no longer a specialist. You are a generalist. And I made a list of things that I had to keep track of, and I suspect this is maybe 30 40% if I had time to think a little bit longer. But let me just give you some some examples of things that I had to be on top of and that you will need to be on top of in your business. Question all assumptions. In fact, that's your major role in the company. Seriously, bend all the rules. Because your employees aren't going to do that. And they are going to be hung up because you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this because of this. So your job is to say, hey, this doesn't exist. You can do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. That's that's probably your most important role in running a company. Ask a lot of questions. Do a lot of listening. (laughs) Keep communication open between your employees. It was frustrating. You know, I had somebody sitting in this office and somebody sitting in this office, and this person would complain that this person wasn't doing this right, and this person would call and complain that this person wasn't doing this right, and they were sitting 30 feet from each other. And finally, I would say, you know what? Right now, get up out of your seat, walk 30 feet, go over and sit down in front of this person and work it out. I don't need to work that out for you guys. You can do that. Uh... And so keep your people communicating with each other is an extremely important thing. Um, Don't make decisions based on fear, rather on vision and an analysis of what can go right. At the same time, and we aren't gonna have time to elaborate this, have one person in your company that is scared to death that you're gonna lose your business. Now listen to them, but don't let them control the company. Because they'll keep you out of of a lot of problems, but if if you let them control the company, they'll close your company down. So understand what your risks are, but figure out how to move ahead in spite of that. Take risks. If you're not a risk taker, do not go into business. Uh, If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. It's not easy, and everybody's not doing it. Make sure your risks are measured risks. For example, what's the size of the risk that you're taking? What is the potential reward? What are the number of risks that you're already taking? It may be a small one, but you already have 15 risks that you're taking, and you don't want to add another risk. But at least you have analyzed it. You aren't just simply running away from it. Uh, Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Know your limitations. Hire people that fill in your weaknesses. Um, hire people smarter than you, as Ford said um, and get out at the right time if you grow a rap- if you have a rapidly growing business at some point, your business is going to exceed you. You have two ways of handling it uh, well po- possibly three maybe you can get the training, but it 's hard to do that and run a business at the same time. You can hire somebody to do that for you, or you can sell your business but but do that strategically. You know, don't wait till you've hit a crisis and then you have to make a decision. Have have a plan for doing that. Con- continually reinvent yourself and the company. We were never the same t- company today as we were yesterday. We were always on the move. Section on strategic planning. There are lots of books out there. Oh, I got to the uh, stay on top of everything. Didn't go through that. I was responsible for management, for purchasing, for finance, for accounting, for cash flow, for pricing, for sales, uh, (coughs) for how a particular product is sold, customer knowledge, understanding the final customer, marketing, customer knowledge, transportation, trucking, rail, shipping, port entry and export, uh, in the terms of law, food handling, importing, employees, immigration, trademark, patent, insurance liability, real estate, warehousing, and inventory control, food sanitation, equipment, maintenance, industry knowledge, computer, hardware, software, and software development, insurance, real estate, plant maintenance, quality, service, quality and service, quality, did I say it? Quality and service? Okay. Investment banking, how to sell, merge your company, so on and so forth. By the way, I started planning that 10 years in advance. If you've got a company of any size, you aren't going to sell it tomorrow. It's a six-month to two-year process. It's a very detailed process. If you aren't prepared for it, you're going to get taken by somebody. So make those plans in advance. Which is, And that's one thing that is a very difficult thing to sell a company while you're running a company. It's, I mean, it's two full-time jobs. Retain an excellent lawyer. In our case, we had a lawyer for all those things that I listed up there, so we had many different lawyers. Uh, Talked about having an exit plan, Uh, you know, uh, merging with another company, bringing in a management team, a family succession plan. Uh, Honesty. That's extremely important to your business. We've been kind of discussing that as we've been going along, but remember that good. Agreements create what? Good relationships. Okay, very good. Uh, And so honesty with your suppliers, with your customers, with your employees. Make honesty a core ingredient in your company. Why can a small company succeed where a big company can't? Uh, As as we've said, there are niches that big companies don't want to be in. Or if they're in, they can't be very competitive because they're so clumsy. So find a niche that is not being covered by a large company so that you can go in and take that niche. And by the way, you may become a large company and take over some of their other business as well. (laughs) A small company can turn on a dime. Creativity is their culture. They don't have a a stack of bureaucracy that you have to go through. Uh, so there are many things that small companies can do that big companies can't. I first realized this, I kept on asking myself, how come we're successful when you know?" And I could name 10 companies that we were competing against? One day I got my answer. Got a call from my pistachio supplier, and he said, Ed, a load of pistachios has just been rejected on the East Coast. This was a West Coast company. He says, would you buy it from me? I said, well, why was it rejected? So it was rejected because they found some wormholes in the pistachios. Okay, now you think of it, the pistachio is inside a shell. A pistachio grows out in the field. What do you have in the field? You have worms. And how do you see a wormhole if it's down underneath the shell? There's, so far, there's no way to test for that. So they were, and, and I knew this was the best pistachio company out there, that if they sent a load of pistachios, it was the best in the world. So uh, uh, he said, now, Ed, I need to tell you, he said, a bunch of boxes have been opened for their quality control, so, but I'm not expecting you to take those. You can just ship those back to us. So I got a good price. I made a, cu- a supplier happy. They had just made a supplier mad. Uh, got the pistachios. They were beautiful. Nothing wrong with them. Uh, and the boxes that were open, about 25% of the product was gone, and 5% of the boxes were open. That was all quality control. Now, frankly, that is incredible overkill. So here, this big company had this big, cumbersome quality control situation that made them reject this load of pistachios that was the best in the world, that made their their supplier mad. We made the supplier happy, and We got a good price, besides. Uh, So then it clicked with me. You know, the president of that company doesn't go down and look at the pistachios. He doesn't even know they've been rejected. I go out and I look at the pistachios and I know they're just fine. Uh, And so small companies indeed have some advantages over large companies. Wish I had time to talk about government, regulation, debt, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, I'll just tell you, don't plan on any of that except for regulation and taxes. You can plan on that. And they may put you out of business. That is always a possibility. It almost happened to us several times. (coughs) Face your personality. You know, some people, they want the comfort. They get a check every week. They know exactly what to do. It's been spelled out for them. They can leave at 5 p.m. Some people enjoy the politics of large institutions. Uh, And so you have to decide who you are before you, you take on something like this. Uh, others, uh, another thing, if your mindset is that it's evil to make money, don't go into business. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds obvious, but, but that happens. You know? Uh, if you can't get out of the box, you're not likely to succeed. On the other hand, others enjoy the exhilaration of, ch- of the chase almost more than the catch a chance to escape the politics of company and institution. They can make decisions. Decisions that were made at the general conference with a committee of 20 in a year, I had to make in sometimes two minutes. didn't mean my decision was better than theirs or that theirs was better than mine. It's just that I had a fast organization that could move, and we could make decisions, and we could go on to the next thing instead of having to to hash things over and over and over again. Chance to create your own world and express your own creativity. Uh, reasons for going into business. Um, you can be your own boss. An opportunity for wealth. And by the way, I've been reading some books. You know, I read that one article on how to be an entrepreneur to run Ann's House of Nuts, but now I had to talk to you guys, so I figured I had to read some books. And I've discovered that, that most people who gain wealth in the United States do it by running a business. And it's not the money they make from the business, it's the money they make from selling the business. And so people that are, that are serial entrepreneurs, they build a business, they sell it, they build a business, they sell it, and so on and so forth, um, are the ones that are most likely to be successful. <coughs> um, it's an opportunity to create an integrational family culture between generations, uh, an opportunity to support philanthropic causes, an opportunity to... to Learn and share your talent with the church. Uh, I want to answer just real quickly here. Oh, boy, our time is up. Why could a bashful young kid like me make it? Several things. Ellen White inspired me. I I don't think I could have done it without her. Uh, Ellen White says that when you read the Bible, it, it strengthens your mind. Uh, Commitment to God, God's leading. You know, as we mentioned, there are several ways in which God led us that we couldn't have thought of ourselves, and I could give you more illustrations. So follow wherever God leads. Um, And God has given us the opportunity. I mean, God's given us our minds. He's given us, you know, our abilities. He's given us the opportunity of developing those abilities. He wants us to do it in harmony with his will, with his word, not opposed to it, but in harmony with it. And he, he has given us so much, and this church has given us so much. I mean, when I travel the world and see what's happening to people worldwide because of this church, it's amazing. Uh, you know, we're taking people at some of the lowest rungs of society, and within one or two generations, they're doctors and nurses and teachers and so on and so forth. It's absolutely wonderful what God is doing through this church. And then people get to the top, and what do they do? It's me. Look what I can do. You know, when, when it's God and this church that has made that possible. And so we need to recognize not only, I mean, it's a responsibility, but it's also a joy to be able to, to give back. And in this day and age, it's not just money. You have developed talent that this church needs. You learn things that you wouldn't learn any other way. The, the, the road of hard knocks is the best teacher for sure. And so not only give of your funds, give of your talent. And allow the church to benefit from the years of experience that you have had in order that we might finish the work of God. I see a hand going back up there. There's something to fill out. Yeah, if any of you... <coughs> If any of you have some questions, I know we didn't leave time for questions, but I'm happy to, to answer, or I shouldn't say answer, try to answer any questions that you have. And I, I should add, there's 100 ways to run a business. So I've simply given you how we ran ours in our situation. You're going to have to find out how it works for you. Thank you very much.